Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite mild-mannered historians to get confrontational. The podcast where the historian tirelessly hunts down the misconception and always gets their man. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and this week I'm on my own, as Kyle has gone off on a research trip to Greece. The fact that this is in the glorious Mediterranean sun should in no way detract from the important research. No, not at all. Well, safe trip, Kyle, and do get back safely. So this week, dear listener, we're going back to the dawn of a nation, the dawn of a people. And to this, we welcome Canadian historian and YouTuber, Brad St. Croix. Brad, welcome to History Rage. Hey, thanks for having me on, Paul. I'm really excited to, to get on. Love the podcast and excited to get to talk about this topic. And hopefully I don't get too fired up because that happens sometimes, but this looks like it's the perfect place to do it. Well, you know the swearing rule, but the rage is on. <laughs> you get as angry as you feel that you need to be. We'll see. Now... Good Lord, you're, you're finally here after multiple <laughs> rearrangements for COVID cancelled events, other engagement, and then COVID cancelling me for a fortnight. But finally, we're here. Yes. Now, yeah, we, we connected on Twitter because, I mean, God knows how many moons ago, but you, you approached us because you particularly wanted to join in the rage. So thank you very much <laughs> for that because that's made my job an awful lot easier. Yeah. But for our other listener... Can you tell us a bit about your background, uh, you uh, and your channel? Yeah. So again, yeah. Uh, thanks for that and, and connecting on Twitter. And that's part of what I do. So my name is, like you said, Brad St. I hold a PhD in history from the University of Ottawa. Uh, I've been, I got it in the summer of 2021. Uh, so just been trying to kind of make my way in the history world and then today's digital age. So that's kind of been my focus. I try to do as much digital outreach as I can for Canadian military history. I do, like you said, YouTube. Uh, the Twitter account is actually what started it all. That was years ago now, just kind of on a whim. Literally think I made it on the bus ride home now that I'm thinking about it. Because uh, <laughs> you can do that, right? That's the, that's the beauty of, of mobile devices. Uh, and then it's just kind of grown from there of other social media platforms that I try to just tell stories of, of Canadian military history. Uh, it started off just as a kind of the run of the mill on this day kind of postings. Uh, and then it just kind mm. of took on a life of its own. 
when I started kind of getting involved in conversations about history, historical topics, which always brings out uh, lots of discussion on Twitter, uh, as, as I'm sure you're aware of, and, and some of your listeners are aware of, <laughs> there's always lots of uh, history fights and things like that. So that kind of helped grow the channel uh, and just kind of gone from there. So I've been doing that and uh, some other side projects that are mostly in the digital realm for other organizations, which I really enjoy doing. So I've been doing pretty much history work solid since I since I graduated. So it, it's it's been great to be able to do that. What kind of took you over from the on, the on this day kind of keeping posting on Twitter, keeping that out there, to actually making the videos and, and reaching out in that medium? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I guess I kind of say, as I like to think of it, is the, the writing's kind of on the wall in a lot of ways in terms of how history is presented in this day and age. I, I see that, you know, the whole literary bent of history might be on the way out. Um, there's all kinds of new platforms where people are engaging with history. It's not the written word, though. Um, videos are increasingly popular. I mean, YouTube, I think, is the most popular, one of the most popular websites on the planet. Uh, people engaging with videos. TikTok, obviously, has grown in popularity over the last couple of years, mm. uh, where there's also history being done there. I'm not on TikTok. I don't know if I will. But uh, for now, I'm doing the, uh, the YouTube thing because I think it's a great way to communicate with people. And again, no, and I don't mean this any disrespect to anyone out there. I'm an academically trained historian myself, but an academic book will only reach such a limited audience. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to get there for maybe 100 people to buy it and read who probably won't even all read it. Whereas a YouTube video can be done with the same sort of rigor, uh, the same sort of sources, and be seen by potentially thousands so much faster. Uh, and I have seen good stuff out there and I try to emulate the good stuff, mm. but crap, but a lot of good stuff. <laughs> uh, so it's just, that was the thinking, right? Is I can join this sort of conversation. As many people always say, history is a conversation by bringing in my skills that are, I think, adaptable to these platforms. And that's why I decided to yeah. do that because I think I could reach more people, frankly, easier, faster and more benefit to myself to be completely frankly honest i mean i would love to sit around writing all day academic books but it's just it's not going to pay the bills especially for someone with you know getting the phd now in my age it's just, it's just seemingly not going to happen yeah to be fair there's a lot of wrestling with publishers and literary agents that you just don't need to do with a youtube channel and a podcast as it seems as well yeah exactly okay so having talked about that which you uh, love doing what we're going to move on to now is that which you hate hearing. So with all the emotion that is due, Brad, will you please tell our listeners what is the one thing you wish people would just get past? I wish people would just get past the concept or notion, myth, whatever word you want to use. See, I'm already getting worked up. Whatever word you want to use is that Canada was born as a nation during the First World War unequivocally not true. I wish people would just move past that because this may sound almost academic and having no real impact, but it actually does have an impact on us who live in Canada, how we think about ourselves and the way we go about conducting our business in day-to-day -day Canada today is still impacted by this concept that Canada was somehow born as a nation in this one conflict over 100 years ago. It's just, it's not true. There's no real evidence to support any of this that holds up when you do any sort of, of again, of that academic rigor, any of that digging. It just doesn't hold up. And I wish people would just stop being so emotionally invested in this. That's the problem for me is it gets so emotional. People get so upset when you try to bring any nuance into this debate. It, it's just, 
it's so difficult to try and present even the slightest bit of counter information or counter, you know, narrative to this that people just jump down your throat. And it's just, it, it, it drives me crazy, especially doing the digital stuff because I see it all the time, right? The topics mm. change so quickly. You can talk about four or five different topics in a given day. And so this comes up all the time for me. This isn't just something that happens around Remembrance Day or in Canada here, like Vimy Ridge, the anniversary in April. It's just, it's it happens all the time for me. So it's something that really, really does upset me and, and really, really, I do think it needs to stop. Is it one of those things that... Forgive me, I'm not Canadian. You know, it was uh, it, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> right. Are you kind of going against the almost thing of fighting against a symbol of national pride here? Like, if we turn around and go, do you know what, England? Ashencore's not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> you know, you could. The, I, I can see the complaint emails are going to come in, even with me just saying right. that. Is, are we up against that sort of thing? Y- here? Y- yes, I, I I think we are uh, in a sense. But given that. I don't think it's, it's, how do I say this? It's not something that can, is set in stone, so to speak, because the meaning of particularly the First World War, but also Canada's military history and Canada as a nation has changed. I don't know how many times uh, since the war occurred, uh, even in the last, what, mm. 75, 50 years, it's, it constantly is changing. So I think this is something that can be sort of fought against and sort of morph it into something that makes a little more sense historically. It just, it doesn't quite hold up to these emotions that have been, you know, applied to this conflict and particular, again, we're just going to keep bringing it up because it's inevitable, but the battle of Vimy Ridge is constantly going to be brought up in this. Uh, And that's definitely one of those symbols that's almost so sacred. Um, And we can probably get into this later, but it's, it's one of those symbols that you try to go against and not go against isn't even the right phrase, but try to be like, well, hold on a minute. You know, it's just almost like, let's pause a bit. That's even enough to get people, you know, set them off. And it's just, it's so difficult to do, but it's not something I'm going to stop doing. That's for sure. <laughs> so as a non-Canadian then, and it is like, I will grant you, it's a, it's a country's history. I have I've absolutely never looked at beyond they landed on Juno <laughs> Beach. I think there we are. There we are. I did do that, um, yes. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we were definitely there. I have witnessed testimony to say you were there. In about a five-minute period, assuming that I'm not kind of reinforcing this Canada as a short-term country kind of <laughs> but in about, in about a five-minute, can, can you give us a kind of beginner's guide to the history of Canada as a nation? Uh, yeah, I can do my best. Again, academic historian, we ramble, so I'll try my best. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to be upfront with those things. Uh it's kind of, I see it in, in almost in, in maybe several parts. And it's longer than just maybe what you're thinking of the short term, you know, political history of Canada, right? 1867. Yeah. Or if you want to go back further than that with the various British, um, you know, political institutions that have run this country. There was a whole period well before any Europeans were here um, that doesn't get hardly any attention. The, the history of the indigenous people um, is something that is going, we call a recon- um, you know, a reconciliation trying to undo the mistakes of the past and that are continuing on. Uh, so we're trying to understand more. When I say we, I mean like settler Canadians, white Canadians, such as myself, trying to understand these stories better because there's evidence that these things exist. These are oral traditions that have been going on for thousands of years and we just ignore them. It just doesn't make any sense. So that's a period that I think is not as well understood and, and needs more work. So there's this whole period of Indigenous people living their lives completely separate from Europeans 
doing everything that happens other places too, you know, war, conflict, having families, building civilizations, all of this. It's just, it's not as well understood because Western academics or society just doesn't like verbal traditions, which is unfortunate. So of course, then you can, you can kind of move forward. I guess I'm guilty of doing it right now, but moving forward to the colonization period, <laughs> right? When the French came to what is now Quebec, uh, Quebec City is one of the first ones founded. Um, it's still got some of the oldest buildings in North America, which by your standards is nothing, but it's, it's old for us. <laughs> um, so, so you have, and that's, yeah, we have shopping centers. Yeah, over probably. <laughs> I mean, I've seen things and yeah, I've been to Britain several times and I'm just like, Oh, this is, this is new. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty one of the oldest buildings in Canada. Uh, it's, uh, it's, and that's where this, this sort of second phase comes in is the kind of the first English French conflict that England eventually becomes British. Uh, this sort of split identity, uh, between the French sections and the English sections. Mm-hmm. You have wars, numerous wars, all up, all kinds of different wars, ones that broke out in Europe and then had an impact in Canada. Colonies getting traded back and forth. Like I think it's now the province of, or parts of what is now Nova Scotia were traded like 13 times or something between the English and the French. Don't use that as a, don't quote me on that. I can't remember exactly, but it's a lot. <laughs> like this goes on for yeah. a long period of time. Um, there's this colonial conflict uh, that eventually comes to a head uh, as what is known the Battle of Plains of Abraham, Quebec City, uh, where the British finally are able to basically take control of the main city of what is then New France. Uh, and win that war, right? That's the Seven Years' War or the Nine Years' War as it was over here because um, it was longer. It's called the French and Indian War in the United States. We call it the Seven Years' War here in Canada. That's where the, the kind of the British institutions really take hold in the country. That's kind of what brings it along because um, the French basically cede any rights to New France, basically. And I have French ancestry, as you can tell by my last name. And Little upset about this yeah, too. It, France just abandoning New France and, and and the Canadians, as they did call themselves at the time, who have been here for generations. Um, they just kind of abandoned them to the wills of the British uh, with the English. Uh, so it is what it is. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so that's when the British, you know, the British identity really comes through. You have the American Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, which has a huge impact on what becomes Canada because what are termed as the Loyalists, uh, they stay loyal to the crown and thought with the British during the revolution, but then of course lost and, and came to what is now mostly uh, Ontario and, and Nova Scotia. Uh, so that has a huge impact on kind of the institutions that grow in Canada politically. I mean, they're British loyalists, but they sure love their local government that they got to learn and love in the, you know, the former American colonies. So that's applied in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, Ontario, which becomes known as uh, upper Canada at the time, eventually becomes Ontario Confederation kind of where that takes root. Uh, and this is all taking place in what we would call today Central Canada or Eastern Canada. Uh, it's not until much, much later uh, that you have development in Western Canada after the Hudson's Bay Company uh, basically sells the land to what becomes uh, the Dominion of Canada in 1867. Uh, and then that's kind of how the rest of the country starts to develop. Uh, provinces slowly join over time. Again, I'm doing this real quick. Uh, it's and there's a whole list of conflicts out out west about this uh, changeover, and they're still debated. That could maybe be another show for somebody else. They're hotly debated, even in their names of what to call them is still hotly debated and gets people upset. So it's 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 there's a series of wars and mistakes and executions taking place. It's a, it's a mess. Just look up the Real rebellions and the Northwest rebellions, and for your listeners, you're in for you're in for a ride if you've never heard of these before. Um, so that kind of brings Canada 
It is what history is about, basically, isn't it? It's like wars, mistakes, and executions. Pretty much much anywhere you go, you've got at least one of the three. We we have, we tend to pretend that's not our history. And I'm like, we're not paying attention or we're just trying to hide it. So that's kind of where that develops. And it's Canada still trying to figure out even literally political control of itself. First World War breaks out. And we can talk more about that as we get on. But that's the next phase, I would say, is the two world wars. And then you have what is now like modern Canada that comes in place, I would say, after 1945. And is what leads to what is the Canada that I live in and so many others do today. So with with all that history that's that really is going back well beyond any white European having the idea of let's go and see, you know, let's go move to America but colder. <laughs> A few, a few, um, a few acres of snow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is country up north. There's two thirds snow. We'll go. That's a very <laughs> British thing. But why, with all that history, then do we get this idea that Canada was born in World War One? And I appreciate that you said it doesn't actually stand up to scrutiny. But I wonder if you could just kind of explain the myth because that's got to come from somewhere. Yeah, obviously, um, these things. They, as I've learned, because my PhD actually focused on myth-making in terms of uh, the Battle of Hong Kong, uh, but more in terms of what that means in Canada and military myths. Uh, So I got to look at this really, really deeply. It comes from uh, this ingrained sense of connection to somewhere else, um, as I guess the best way to put it. Uh, And hence why Mm. it has no, it has a grain of truth. It's a pretty tiny grain. Um, it, it comes from the British connection, which fits well with being on a British podcast. Uh, it's it, it's that political connection. That's why I emphasize that so much. It's this mm. idea that in 1867, yes, Canada becomes a, a, a nation. Uh, or again, I've been I've even gotten in trouble for calling Canada a nation, to be honest. Um, country, a, a state. I don't know. We weren't technically fully independent. We didn't have control over foreign policy. Yeah. Right until much, much later, um, even after the First World War, it doesn't happen. Right until the 1920s, um, but there's this this ingrained sense of Britishness that that is, I think, why this happens. Because for that 50 year period, roughly between Confederation and the, the outbreak of the First World War, Canada is very much a British country. Um, most of the immigration comes from Britain. Yeah. That's very much on purpose. Laws are put in place to keep people out uh, that who are not from the British Isles. There's a little bit at the end of, say, the 19th century of trying to encourage Eastern Europeans to come to the country uh, and Central Europeans. But that's a very small portion of it. Um, but of course, yeah. you have these two populations that have nothing to do with Britain <laughs> that are here. You have the indigenous population and the French population. Again, these are broad strokes, but this is kind of where the myth comes from because it's these British or as we call English Canadians, right? Because of the language difference. Um, It's this, oh, now we're free. We helped Britain, but we showed our medal on the world stage and now we're our own kind of thing, I guess. Like what that even means is not ever clearly defined until much, much later. So it's very complicated. Sorry, I know I'm supposed to be explaining the myth, but I'm, I have to kind of knock it because they like I'm. That's my history, your age, but it just yeah. it's hard not to because it just there's so many holes in this argument that doesn't even make any sense. It just it doesn't really work. But I do think it comes from this sense of ingrained, ingrained sense of Britishness and English Canadians. And again, I don't mean the country of England. I mean English speaking Canadians because there was just more of them yeah. <laughs> at the time. <laughs> just more of them with British background. It could be here for generations, 
other side of my family is actually of, of English extraction. They had been here for generations, but they probably still would have said we're British. You know, that, that is what they yeah. identified as. There's no Canadian passport until after the Second World War. There's no Canadian citizens until after the Second World War. They're British. So it's this kind of triumph. I don't know. I see it almost like a teenage rebellion, almost. Like, we're not like our parents anymore. We do our own thing and we are good at it. You know, we did these things that they yeah. couldn't do or they don't understand. Uh, but we, we like them, but we're different. You know, it's it's kind of got that to it, which, again, doesn't really hold up to much scrutiny, to be honest, past and into the period of the Second World War. So if we're central to this myth, as you've kind of alluded to before, is the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Yes. So what role does it play in kind of creating this myth? And <laughs> then what do the Canadians actually do? And I appreciate I'm going to get yelled at by First World War historians here. I'm not a First World War historian. <laughs> so what, what did the Canadians actually do at the Battle of Vimy Ridge? Yeah, well, I'll just say it out here. Um, I mean, we could have titled this, you know, that the, the Vimy Ridge, you know, birth of a nation is a myth. Uh, it is, that is where it starts in a lot of respects. It is Vimy Ridge. There's literally quotes in books that, again, that have no documentary proof of people saying, we went up the ridge as, you know, uh, Maritimers, our East Coast, uh, you know, Quebecers, Quebecois, French Canadians, Ontarians, Saskatchewans what have you. Um, sorry, we have too many provinces. I'm not naming them all. <laughs> but we came down the ridge Canadians. A, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I have no idea what that actually means. There's no evidence. There's hardly any evidence of this. Yes, some people were writing that, oh, we feel more Canadian now. Not necessarily because of Vimy Ridge. Vimy Ridge holds such a strong place. And again, I'm, I don't necessarily believe this. It just, again, First World War. Right, the French tried to take Vimy Ridge, 1915, right, as part of uh, the Artois Offensive, Second Artois Battle, Second Battle of Artois, if I'm remembering mm-hmm. correctly, and hold it for an afternoon, basically, and then get pushed off the ridge. If any of you have been there, you can see why this happens. Uh, and then the British hold the sector for a certain number of time until they, you know, give it to the Canadians to take as part of the, uh, you know, the Ross Offensive of 1917. Uh, they're in that sector for quite a long time, plan this offensive for a very long time. And in terms of what they did do, it is an impressive feat of arms. I'm not just, you know, I'm not taking that down at all. I think there are more impressive feats in the world. Maybe we can get to that in a second. But what Canadians actually did at Vimy Ridge is quite impressive, right? And because it comes back to, you know, the French couldn't hold it. The British, again, it's another myth. There's all these claims that the British tried to take it and couldn't. There's no British offensive directed at Vimy Ridge ever. It doesn't exist. That's just a myth that gets played up Mm -hmm. by political commentators and in our country, which maybe a lot of your viewers won't understand, uh, the power of hockey commentators in this country actually has helped make this myth grow. There's been a huge controversy a few years ago about one of the most renowned hockey commentators saying some very basically racist things who used to propagate this myth every year. He finally got canned. I'm not saying his name because I don't want to give him any press, but he he was one of the people who did this. He made them believe like the British couldn't do it. We did it. You know, we took that ridge. I mean, the four divisions did take the ridge, yes, in three days. And a high number of casualties, which never gets talked about. Uh, and also, yeah. its aftermath never gets talked about, which is unfortunate. So what is that aftermath? The aftermath in Canada is actually, in and of itself, Canada, the country of Canada, not just for Canadians, by our standards, is actually quite bloody. Um, Vimy Ridge is one of the direct reasons for Canadian conscription in the First World War. The casualties are so high 
that they can't replace the losses anymore. Voluntary, you know, voluntary enlistment had dried up um, before Vimy. It just made it clear that this isn't going to yeah. continue on. And again, I mentioned those divisions in Canadian society, French Canada specifically. Um, when this gets put in place, a lot of people are pissed off, frankly. They're like, why are we having to go fight a war for a country that we don't like, have no affinity for, no connection to? Why do we have to go fight and die for them? Now, you might say, hey. It's a fair question. Well, it's exactly. It's a very fair question. And you might also say, oh, well, they're French, right? They speak French. Well, they want to help France. Honestly, and again, part of the swearing rules, they couldn't give a shit about France. They didn't care. Like I said, and I know this because I've heard this from people my own relatives. They abandoned us. Why do we care <laughs> what happens yeah. to them? I've heard this from many people, uh, some older people that have now passed on, but it's, they didn't care about us. Why should we care about them? You know, so I don't want to go fight and die for France either. I want to stay home and, and farm and live my life. What do I care? Right. And, and this comes to a head in a lot of ways. There's a literally a, a riots, several riots, which we do have riots beyond hockey games, guys, that does happen here. <laughs> I will say we have lots of hockey riots and they'll still go on. <laughs> Hockey's going to come up a lot for any Canadian ever. Um, Cause yeah. it's just true. Uh, most of the things you hear are, are true, uh, but it, it becomes down to violence and, and the troops are brought into Quebec city where one of the worst one was, and they open fire on a crowd. Um, there's again, rumors they were being shot at uh, having rocks thrown at them, that kind of thing. They fire volleys into the crowd and kill people. Canadians were killing Canadians over conscription. That starts in its practical sense. I mean, it had been going on ever since the war started, right? There's always calls for conscription at Vimy Ridge. Like the real practical reason why this has to happen is on this hill in France. So that never gets talked about ever. <laughs> that is not part of the myth. That is not even discussed. Conscription is barely talked about. It's, you know, kind of a hushed yeah. tone thing or it's like, oh, it wasn't a big deal or it's a really big deal depending on your own personal history or your your background, ethnic background, or what have you. Um, it can be a very big deal. I know lots of people are still upset about it, that these people were getting killed. And again, it's wrong. Canadians should not be killing Canadians on Canadian soil over something like this. That, that should never have happened. And yet it did. And when stuff with Vimy Ridge happens or gets discussed about the birth of a nation, I mean, it's literally on merchandise all across the country. Yeah. That's literally the phrase birth of a nation. I have a hat. I I do not purchase it myself. I was gifted it. That literally says that. (laughs) And I pulled it out of the bag when I first got it. went, Oh, I'm going to get in trouble if I wear this. Uh, (laughs) So that's, so that's just kind of the central part of this myth that Vimy has. It, It just holds this mythical place. And, and I can speak to why, why I think so. I don't think it has really anything to do with at the time. We love to bring up the fact that the four Canadian divisions fought together. I go, okay, what does that matter? <laughs> like, whoa, they march side by side to the infantry soldier or to the gunner on the field. You just see you're immediately 30 feet around you anyway. What do you give a crap if another battalion from Nova Scotia is marching with you or they're from Yorkshire? What do you give a crap? What do you give a shit who they are, or where they're from? Like the four Canadian bata- uh, divisions had rotated through the song. No one ever talks about that, but because they weren't there together, it doesn't matter. It happened again later. The four Canadian divisions fight together through the 100 days. No one talks about that, but Vimy, it's the most important thing ever. And I'm just like, I don't care. (laughs) Nobody else cares. Britain certainly didn't give a shit because they have how many divisions in the field at a given time? Four, they're like, whatever, stop being a pain in our ass, just go fight. You know, that happened a lot. 
um, yeah. this Canadian identity thing that's something separate from Vimy. But I think that is why, and the monument, for those of you who have seen it, visually you can't take away from that thing. It is awe-inspiring, breathtaking. It's, it, I think because of that, Vimy became so much more important because of that monument. It is literally the yeah. national memorial for the First World War. It's called the, the Vimy National Memorial. It is representing Canada's First World War overseas. It literally lists the name of every Canadian who has no known grave who fell in France. We're not on any of the other ones. Like we're on the Menin Gate and things like that in Belgium, not France. It literally has every name on it. And it's just in this awe-inspiring position. It's literally on a hill. It overlooks the, the Douai Plain, which is just breathtaking to look at from this height. I think that plays a huge role into this of why Vimy is seen as such much more important than it even was at the time. The Canadian commander of the Canadian Corps at the end of the war, Arthur Curry, said, don't put it there. Vimy was not as important to us as the other battles. They didn't listen. <laughs> but uh, that's just an example, right? The guy who was, who was a Canadian trained in everything, military, like an art soldier trained in Canada, said, don't do this. And they did it anyway. I mean, we're not here to talk about that. It's quite more complicated than what I'm allowing. But I do think it has a lot to do yeah. with this memorial being so awe-inspiring that people just get wrapped up in Vimy. It's like, oh, well, there's a big memorial there, so it must be the most important thing ever. Almost like eulogized to and deified to something that oh, is yeah. just not even remotely close to, to the truth. It's literally been called a cathedral. Um, it's literally been called an altar. It has all these Christian connotations. That is also part of its power. Um that we really don't acknowledge in this country anymore because we pretend that that's not an important part of this country anymore, but clearly has some staying power because people still think that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yes, is there anything else around this myth as well that then deserves absolutely ripping apart? Uh, it's, it's the big thing I like to think about is... How do I say this? It's again, there's a lot of identity here, obviously, um, with nationhood. It's idea of what it meant to be Canadian at the time. No one has come up with a definition of what that means. No one's ever going to come up with a definition of what that means. Most of the immigration is, is from Britain. But I'm not saying this is like, I don't know, we have this picture in this country of, you know, we call them pioneers coming in, coming on the boat, you know, getting their wagon and going farming somewhere in Saskatchewan and Ontario. That's not really what happened to most people. Most, mostly men at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, come as full-grown adults, accents from all over the bloody place, sorry, <laughs> it can get confusing for some of us, especially those who've grown up here with all the different accents, 
they live in Britain. They live in Canada, and then they go fight as part of the Canadian Corps. Are they Canadian? Are they British? Are they both? I don't know. They don't even know. They didn't even say. <laughs> like no one was talking about this. It didn't really seem to matter. So that's part of that. But also this idea that Vimy Ridge is a Canadian only victory is complete and utter bullshit. It's just not true. Yeah. Without the BEF, the bigger British Expeditionary Force, Vimy Ridge would have been Canadian sitting in the mud, plain and simple. If they could even get across the channel, which they couldn't have been able to do with Canadian resources, it was impossible. We, we as in Canadians, needed the British resources for logistics, for literally for guns. We needed all yeah. the British artillery to make that happen. This famed creeping barrage that's part of every lesson that's taught to every school child who learns about Vimy Ridge was only because of the British. Yes, it's partly Canadian planned. Also, another point, most of the staff officers that planned Vimy Ridge, not Canadian by any definition of the word. The Canadian Corps commander at the time, Julian Bing, when he was placed in command, said, I've never met a Canadian. Why are they doing this to me? <laughs> so... <laughs> This is why this is that's a perfect point that no one talks about. A Bing is completely forgotten in in Vimy. Another myth is that who I mentioned earlier, Arthur Curry, is the commander. It's just not true. It's just the simplest Google search will tell you that's just not true. (laughs) It's a Canadian. He's the division of he was a first division commander, but he's been elevated to almost godlike status in a lot of ways. Bing is just completely right now. He doesn't exist. Um, But that's the problem. And that's what's also part of this myth. It's it's a Canadian victory. It's all Canadians. Canadians did this. No help from anybody else. We did what the French couldn't do. We did what the British couldn't do. We took it and held it forever. And I just go, well, that's just not true on the ground of the day. It's not even close. You have British, like I said, logistical support, artillery support. There's a British battalion that gets brought up as reinforcements (laughs) during the actual fighting. Do you think they ever get any mention? No. The flanks are held by British divisions. I mean, they do kind of a not great job, but I'm not here to talk about that. <laughs> but they're there, and they're an essential part of the operation. And they're just forgotten, just right now completely. So it's on two levels here. You have those Brits, which would probably call themselves Brits at the time, fighting mm-hmm. Canadian units. And then the Brits are actually part of the British Army, who make her essential to the victory at Vimy. It's the only part of the Arras offensive that is actually successful. And it's mostly because of British artillery. That's going to get me in trouble for just saying that. But it's that's how I feel. That's how the evidence supports this. There's a few Canadian players that are important, like uh, Andrew McNaughton kind of develops counter-battery warfare. It's only a small part of this. If you don't have that creeping barrage and all that training that comes from British officers, this goes nowhere. So that's that's another one. It's that's why it's so hard to you know to come at this right because when it's the central part of this myth right is Canadians did this thing that no one else can do and it's just us you know waving with our little flags and then you go well that just doesn't hold up to any sort of scrutiny. That's when people get upset. I've literally had this happen yeah. to me on Twitter. People are like it's a Canadian thing and you can't take that away. That's really trying to take it away. I'm just trying to get you to understand a little bit of nuance here. It's that, that That's it. And that we tie our identity to one thing in one time period. It's just, it's, to me, it's bonkers. We have so much in this country that we should be trying to look at. And even in some cases, elevate more. We've got a lot of shameful yeah. things too. But we just get wrapped up in Vimy Ridge in the First World War. And I just think that's a disservice to the Canadians. <laughs> whoever they may be that came before. (laughs) 
I don't know. I think actually a bigger disservice to the Canadians was the film The Forgotten Battle. Yeah, that was yeah. not great. <laughs> not terrible. At least we were in it. <laughs> Longest day we weren't even in it. <laughs> Every beach, eh? We weren't even in that one. So, I mean, uh, at least there was a Canadian uniform. I mean, it was kind of not perfect, but at least we were there. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, but the chap did say we was a Canuck and not a Canadian. Well, yeah, they that's a whole other yeah i think the best review that i heard of that was uh, somebody who said the uh, the worst thing about the forgotten battle was they forgot the battle yeah they did in a lot of ways but anyway we're not, yeah. not here to talk about that yeah if you want to know more about the battle of the shelt guys get on to uh, we have ways of making you talk they will tell you all about it whether you want them to or not yeah it comes up a lot so <laughs> okay so since the birth of this myth since world war one you know how has canadian identity developed since then Right. So again, coming back to the concept of a birth of a nation, like I already, we already talked about Vimy plays an important part of that, but the war overall is when this is said to happen. Uh, and into the post-war period, it's said to have a more Canadian identity. Again, I don't really know what that means. I've never seen a definition that's satisfactory of what a Canadian even is back then, today, anytime. Uh, it's just, I can't, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea what makes Canada a Canadian, you know, a Canadian, a Canadian other than living in the political boundaries of, of the can- country of Canada. Um, so that's starting to kind of develop. But I argue it doesn't really kind of go anywhere until the Second World War. Uh, mm. That is kind of what I think is the change in a lot of ways. And I'm sure people listening can point to things like um, the, the Statute of Westminster, Canada becomes in charge of its own foreign policy. That's kind of the Canadian independence, right? We're not really relying on Britain for anything after that. Things like the mm-hmm. Privy Council, which come later, Canadian citizenship, which I mentioned earlier, things like that. And then the repatriation of the Constitution, as we call it, even though it was never here. So <laughs> how can you repatriate something you never had? Uh, anyway, um, in 1982 is kind of seen as another watershed moment of independence for Canada from Britain. Yeah. Um, that was a big one. The centennial was another big one. That is also kind of what helped with this sort of identity of Canadianness. So in 1967, right, it's, it's the centennial, was the centennial, sorry, uh, of Canada as the Dominion of Canada at the time. It, it was a huge deal. I mean, I didn't live through it. My, my parents did. Um, and the after effects of the centennial are huge. There's things all over this country that are named centennial that most people have no idea why they're called that. There's schools everywhere that were open in 1967 are just called centennial school. Like that played a huge role in kind of a Canadian sense of self in a lot of ways. I mean, we've been around a while. <laughs> I guess it's kind of what helped. Um, that is something that that I think really kind of cements it uh, in the later parts of the 20th century. And then you have literally the changing look of Canada, of Canadians, around the same time, the late 60s. You have increased immigration from across the planet. This is no longer just the British Isles anymore coming over here. You've got people coming from everywhere, which to me is great. I mean, it makes, because I'm sorry, but Canada before that, other than what I story sounds so boring. I'm sorry. Sorry, Britain. Back then, you guys were not that interesting. (laughs) There was always this sense of- We can do dull really, (laughs) Yeah, you guys were pretty dull. uh, And Canada really emulated that. We emulated the dull whiteness, which is just to me is so boring. It just- it's the same old, same old that goes on forever. And that starts to change. You have people coming from everywhere. And then that's kind of what, again, throws another sort of wrench into making this Canadian identity. What does that mean anymore? We literally put in place 
I think it was with the same time as the Constitution, a concept, a political concept of multiculturalism. Multiculturalism defines Canada. That's great. I mean, I, again, I'm not against that in any way, shape, or form. I just don't entirely know what that means. I know where it comes from. It's an antithesis of the American melting pot. It is literally, we're not America. That's kind of where that starts to come up a lot stronger. Is we're not America. Okay, great. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that doesn't make, make any difference. Like, I don't know what that means. We share the same continent. We share almost the identical same culture. I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. We have differences in culture, with, especially lately with new, yeah. new immigrants coming from even newer places. It's, again, changing again. It constantly is changing. Uh, and again, it's just, we try to define ourselves. And I, but I think this is more of a modern thing. I don't, even going back to the First World War, they weren't saying, oh, we're not Americans. It's, we're British. We're British Canadians. Again, whatever that yeah. means to, it comes to almost down to the individual level. Now we're not, you know, whatever Canadians, a lot of people do will still identify with their, with their ethnicity again, which is messy because <laughs> then the ethnicity is all over the place, but they'll still identify as Italian Canadian or French Canadian, yeah. or, you know, say Indian Canadian from India, because again, the word Indian gets thrown around here a lot. And again, that's another problem, but it, again, that's different too. The indigenous people have different identity all over again. So again, sorry, it's uh, it's complicated. <laughs> I'm going I'm, I'm going to read you a quote here now. Go for it. Okay, which is uh, which I'm featuring to kind of the next question. So it's about Vimy Ridge, yeah, of course. Of course, it is. Yeah, <laughs> it is through their sacrifice that Canada became an independent signatory of the Treaty of Versailles, and in that sense, Canada was born here. That was Justin Trudeau, your own <laughs> Prime Minister. Now, if you're, uh, I'm not going to say head of state, if your head of government is coming out of, with that at a memorial that is in front of the rest of Europe, if not the world, being beamed at, how on earth are you ever going to get past this? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um anti-historian bit here with some little recent context right with what's been going on literally in the city i live in. i live in ottawa the things that happened here made international news about our city mm. being literally held hostage uh, about people who are upset with trudeau uh, he's one of the, our most of a you know decisive president i'm sorry see the americans creep in when you're not even trying of our most decisive prime <laughs> ministers again i'm not really sure why um people hate him just because they hate him there's a lot of anger towards him but what i do want to say is this sort of historical myth, this amnesia almost, is not contained to one prime minister. It's not contained to one political party. It's not contained to one era. This mistake, this myth that keeps getting compounded by our political parties has been going on since it started. <laughs> Their <laughs> grasp of history is downright terrible. It is awful. They don't understand half of what happened. And I'm talking, and I say they, I'm not talking about the current government. I'm not talking about the current cabinet. I'm not talking, I'm talking about even about the current, you know, members of parliament. I'm talking about most of them right through from when the stupid little, you know, hostage taking of the city of Ottawa was happening, where someone claimed that Passchendaele was then the board, you know, birth of Canada. That was a new one. I went, what? And you're yeah, linking yeah. it to this again. Oh, yeah. I went, what the hell are you talking about? And then he's linking it to this nonsense. This has been going on for decades. <laughs> this just doesn't stop. It, it, it's it's this sort of the government doesn't understand whether it's on purpose or not. I have some theories about that. 
of what happened with this military history. I think a lot of it is just downright ignorance, but I think some of it is actually on purpose. We've had issues in this country, and I'm just going to say this outright, and whether it hurts my job prospects, I don't care, how we take care of our veterans. We uphold what happened after the Second World War as the shining example of how to treat veterans. Yeah, it was great and better than other wars and better than other countries. Doesn't mean it can't be better. I think this has been done on purpose to save money. We did this multiple times with multiple governments, with multiple political parties. They all do it. They all use veterans called Veterans Affairs here as the dumping ground necessarily. I don't think this is currently true, but sometimes as the dumping ground for people they want to give a cabinet position to, to maybe fill a geographical requirement that we do in this country. That's an unspoken rule. Uh, Different provinces have to have a certain amount of representatives in the cabinet. Yeah. As a dumping ground for the terrible people. They've done that. Uh, they slash budgets. They make it more difficult than necessary. Uh, this is why I think this sort of birth of a nation nonsense breeds these sort of misunderstandings and is very useful for people today. I'm talking about today. I know people have tons of issues with veterans affairs, uh, veterans of, uh, of Afghanistan and our other deployments across the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, those partners who had uh, had their partners killed in service, Afghanistan accidents, what have you are still having issues with Veterans Affairs. When this stuff should be so streamlined and so straightforward after having two massive world wars <laughs> that set up this department, it should be much easier. It's not. And it's. I think it's a shame of this country that we don't talk about in that sense. This, the government doesn't do what it should, and I think it's done on purpose. And things like First World War, Birth of a Nation, you know, you can tout a generation that is literally all gone and dead that doesn't cost you any money, right? If we try to yeah. focus on more current things and the people who are having problems today, it's easier. It's, 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 we just, it's easier to forget them, right? Well, they took Vimy. Now we're, we were at Versailles. I mean, whoop-de-doo. <laughs> Woo-hoo, we wrote our name down on a piece of paper. The Americans still didn't want us there. Yeah. Didn't make us a country. Like, that's again, that's nonsense. Piece of paper that started another war 20 years later. Well, we can go about that for forever. We yeah. do a whole podcast literally about that topic alone. Uh, but it's just, it's things like that, that you can just undo very quickly. Be like, yeah, we signed the piece of yeah. paper, but the Americans stopped us from doing anything of real work at Versailles. No one talks about that either. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just true. Uh, it's just, it's, it's just makes things easier for people who have certain objectives. And again, I'm not saying this about our current prime minister. I'm saying this about all the prime ministers ever since the world wars and the ones who were there during. It's a national shame. It's one of our, our many uh, alongside, I'm going to throw this in there with the treatment of the indigenous people. That's still ongoing. These are two ongoing issues that have historical backgrounds, that have historical, I'll call them excuses of why they're so poorly handled that continue on. And this is why I get so pissed off because, A, I get told all the time, well, history doesn't really matter that much. Or people don't think about these questions. These things don't matter anymore. And I'm like, yeah, they do. They're being used against you and you just don't realize it. You're, 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 you're buying what they're selling and you shouldn't. I'm not saying rebel and, you know, start fires in downtown Ottawa like certain other groups did. I'm just saying it's stop and think about this for a second. Why are they saying this? Who does this benefit? Why does this myth continue on when it's so easily picked apart by so many people? Why? Who's doing this and to what end? That's what pisses me off is people just, again, maybe that's the academic historian in me. It's just like, stop and think for a second. It doesn't even take that much. You'll, you'll sit there and spout Vimy Ridge this and Canadian veterans that on the 9th yeah. of April or November 11th. Any other day of the year, you're 
just okay with it and don't care what that, you know, what that actually means in practice for people yeah. who live in Canada today, Canadian veterans who are with us now who need help and will need help for decades. We're just uh, screw them. You know, they cost too much money. So it's just, it just that's, gets pisses me off so much. If you had to come out with a historical event that, that you would say that Canada is born from, yeah. that we just don't think about, what is it? Uh, I kind of teased it a little bit, but I'm going to say the Second World War. Specifically, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately because the anniversary just passed. If I have to like nail it down to just like say you wanted me to pick like one like Second World War is too broad. Yeah. VE Day. Yeah, we're not going to cancel your PhD. <laughs> I would say VE Day. Why am I saying that? And I got a bit, not in trouble, but it was a good debate online a couple of days ago about this. We don't celebrate VE Day. It was celebrated, obviously, on the actual VE Day. I mean, we some cities went a little too hard and maybe rioted and, you know, burned a good chunk of the city down and stole all the booze. That happens. Um, yeah. <laughs> another reason why we riot, we win. We do that with hockey too. We win. We riot when we win. We riot when we lose. Otherwise, there's going to be a riot. Uh, I would put VE Day, and why I say that, and this is an increasingly looked at area of scholarship, is the impact that the Second World War has that has not been noticed. Canada becomes this country that it does, whether you like it or not, of things that define us, that have been used as an, as an identity marker, like things like our socialized healthcare system the social net that we have in place that is better than some countries, but worse than some others. That's an aside. Mm-hmm. I would say it's when this sense of victory is finally achieved and then they go, what now? What do we want now? The old way clearly did not work. We had two generations getting killed. We can't keep doing this. We have to do better. That's what I think is what helps define Canada now is that event after. So maybe, say, May 9th, after the hangovers come, maybe the 10th, you know, when the, when, yeah. when things are finally starting to be, you know, seen in the day of light. The war is over in Europe. Yes, I know the war in, against Japan was not over. I don't need people to tell me that. I have a PhD in history and worked on the Battle of Hong Kong. I know we have, that. A, we have a whole series one podcast episode on VE days, not the end of the war. Yeah, yeah. and then there's everything that happens after, right, in the immediate aftermath and all of that. But I think for the Canadian context, if you're going to look domestically, but also the service members overseas, they go, we're done. Like, this is not just me saying, the veterans said this, like, we're done. Yeah, Japan, attack Hong Kong. I don't give a shit. I want to go home. I'm tired. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of being poor because the Great Depression isn't the experience of most of these service Mm -hmm. members, right? They grew up poor their entire childhoods and then have to go fight you know, fascism and, and, and the Japanese right? as their 18th birthday present, you know? So they're, they're like, we're done. We're tired of this. I don't want to do this anymore. We need to do better. I think yeah. that is kind of what makes Canada what it is today. We get it wrong a lot. I still think we're getting a lot wrong, but we do try to make things better. So maybe that is one thing we could say is kind of what is helping define Canada. It's not the end of the first world war. I mean, political you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like treaties and statutes are all well and good. And they make good museum pieces and they make good, you know, quotes and books mm-hmm. and sound bites and crap like that. But they don't actually change all that much on the ground. A farmer outside Regina isn't going to give a shit if we have a vote in the League of Nations or not. Why is the cost of wheat going down? I don't give a shit. I want to live. <laughs> You know, like that's yeah. what I'm saying. I think that's why the Second World War is, should be seen as more important because it leads to things like 
the systems we put in place, our better understanding of Canada's place. We're not Britain. We're not on Britain's coattails anymore because that this is just didn't work. Sorry, you guys are broke and can't help yourselves. How the hell are you going to help us? <laughs> you know, we just kind of, yeah, we just kind of went, oh, that's rough. I mean, it pissed off a lot of people. We just went, oh, okay. And we have, you know, the lumbering giant next door that cannot be ignored. That's got a huge role to play too in modern Canada. Like I said earlier, we're not Americans, um, but we're right next to them. And we can't not think about them all the time. We don't have a choice. So I think that is a big part of this um, is that shift from, hey, we're British to, hey, we're not American. That's the big And now to, hey, we are now Canadian. Yeah, which we're still trying to figure out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much. That was was a truly epic rage. And it's given me a lot to think about. So I'll, I'll confess, I'd not considered Canadian history. And I was new to that myth as well myself. But thank you for sending a rage across the Atlantic. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. I really, uh, really appreciate it and really enjoy it. Good. Blood pressure lower? Yes. Much, much better. I've been thinking about this in the back of my mind for days and now it all just came out. (laughs) If you'd like to know more about Brad's work, ladies and gentlemen, you can start by connecting with the OTD in Canadian History YouTube channel and we'll put a link in the show notes to that. And you can follow Brad on Twitter at OTD Can Mill Hiss, that's for the uh, Canadian military history, and individually at Brad St. Croix. But once again, Brad, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel, and you can follow Kyle at Kyle G History. And if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon, as your £5 a month will get you episodes three months ahead and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. Until next week, thanks a lot for listening. Stay angry. Bye-bye.